welcome to the Madden America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry, and social justice. Welcome to the Mad and the Family podcast. I'm Miranda Spencer, Parent Resources Editor at Mad in America. Today we're going to be talking about the links between nutrition and mental health, and the science that's showing that diet may help improve or even prevent mental health issues in children and adults. Our guest is Julia Rucklidge, PhD. Julia is a professor of clinical psychology at the University of Canterbury in New Zealand, where she leads the Mental Health and Nutrition Research Group. Originally from Toronto, Canada, Julia completed her undergraduate degree in neurobiology at McGill University and received her PhD in clinical psychology at the University of Calgary, followed by a postdoctoral fellowship at the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto. She currently serves on the executive committee for the International Society of Nutritional Psychiatry Research. Julia's interest in nutrition and mental illness grew out of her own research showing poor outcomes for children with psychiatric illness despite conventional treatments. In the last decade, her mental health and nutrition research group has been running clinical trials investigating the role of broad-spectrum micronutrients in the expression of issues such as ADHD, mood disorders, anxiety, and stress associated with traumatic events such as earthquakes and mass shootings. Julia has over 130 peer-reviewed publications and book chapters, has been frequently featured in the media, and has given invited talks all over the world on her work on nutrition and mental health. Her TEDx talk, The Surprisingly Dramatic Role of Nutrition in Mental Health, has been viewed nearly two million times. With her colleague Bonnie Kaplan, Ph.D., she is the author of a new book, The Better Brain, Overcoming Anxiety, Combating Depression, and Reducing ADHD and Stress with Nutrition, which will be published April 20th by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. We're going to talk specifically about what parents and families should know about how nutrition affects children's and adolescents' brains, moods, and behavior, and what they can do to support that. Your work is at the forefront of a newer field called nutritional psychiatry. Um, You say in your book, The scientific evidence is strong that all health professionals should consider diet and nutrients as a frontline treatment for psychiatric disorders. Nutrition is not magic, but it should be one of the first tools clinicians reach for for their toolbox. Can you explain the relationship between nutrition and brain health? What's the 101 on that? Sure. So um, bottom line is that uh, what we explain and t- spend a lot of time in in the book is explain is explaining why you should care about in- your intake of micronutrients and that is your minerals and vitamins that we can get out of our food they they are in certain types of foods but not surprisingly they are only contained within foods that are um, whole real foods there's a lot fewer minerals and vitamins in your ultra processed food but we can certainly get to that. So in terms of the them being foundational is that these micronutrients are essential for making things like your neurotransmitters that have been really well established as being important for the regulation of a number of different emotions, uh, like your mood or your anxiety or um, your concentration or your sleep. They're essential for all of these brain functions that are happening all the time. So if you don't get, if you're you're not getting an adequate supply of these vitamins and minerals in your 
um, from your food, then you can start to appreciate that that's going to have a, a, a downward effect on the ability of your brain to function at its best. And so it won't be able to necessarily make the things that are re required for regulating your emotion, or it won't be able to participate in um, helping your mitochondria, which is the little powerhouses of your cell, make uh, energy molecules that are going to ensure that you've got good energy throughout the day, or to be participate in uh, in helping keeping your what we call calling keeping your DNA healthy. That is ensuring that they can adequately be turned on and off in order to uh, make sure that your body makes proteins, for example. So that's um, that's sort of the the that's why we we talk about it as being so fundamental. But it's really important to sort of take that in the context of the fact that at the same time, over the last hundred years, we've had the biggest scientific or human experiment ever in terms of our diet. In that we've changed our diet so dramatically that we are no longer getting those minerals and vitamins that are so essential for good brain health. Okay. Um, but how does brain health and mood, emotional regulation and behavior tie together? I mean, um, it's probably overly simplistic to say, well, ser serotonin levels are what determine our mood and such like that. So mm -hmm. what, uh, without getting too scientific, how does our nutritional status, like if we're nutrient depleted in some way, how, how can that potentially affect our mood, behavior, thoughts? In order for us to be able to uh, regulate our emotions, we do have to have chemical activities that have to go on in our brains. So we do have to ensure that there are this there's communication in our, between our neurons, and that you go from you know the messages that start in one neuron transmit to another neuron. And I know that's quite a biological basis, as opposed to on Madden America. Oftentimes, there's quite a bit of resistance to that biological basis, and I don't know if that's what you're also sort of alluding to. Uh, and it's it's not to say that that means that you have to have a chemical uh, cure for it. What I'm saying is that for in order for our to, us to be able to uh, regulate our emotions alongside the, our biology, these uh, ingredients are pretty essential to be present in order for that to function. Right, because if our body isn't really at its top level, then our thoughts and behaviors and moods also can't be um, functioning at optimal level? Well, that's what, what makes logical sense to me, is that if you don't have the fuel in your tank, your car isn't going to run, even mm -hmm. if your car is a Mercedes. <laughs> so you can have an amazing brain function, you can have uh, you know amazing wiring and all of that, but if you don't have the necessary ingredients available for everything to be operating, then you can see that it's going to, you're, that could definitely have a downward effect in terms of your ability to, um, you know, be energized for the day or to be able to react appropriately when bad things happen. Mm. You know, if you get stressed that you have the, the uh, available fuel to be react, not only be able to cope with the stress, in a reasonable way without having, you know, just, you know, losing, you know, losing the plot and, uh, you know, getting really angry or frustrated or whatever can happen is that you can, you'll have not only the nutrients that are required for that 
that stress response, I we like to call it the fight flight response, but that there's nutrition nutrients remaining to help with everything else that's going on that don't require immediate uh, need like survival, but still are really important for your day-to-day function. Okay. Um, you mentioned that the ultra-processed food that seems to be what many people are eating today is one of the reasons that we have a nutritional deficiency that in turn can affect our brain and our mental health. Um, what else is going on in our environment that can help or hurt rather um, our nutritional status? You know, it's a, certainly a, a, a really good clue to say we need to look at our food and our current food environment. And if, and if we look at epidemiological studies, and those are those big population studies that are done, say in North America, like in the United States or in Canada, what those studies really, really clearly show is that about half of the calories of the average American are coming from ultra-processed foods. Mm-hmm. So to suggest that ultra-processed food might be playing a, an important role is based on the looking at people's dietary habits and saying, we've really changed our dietary habits in a really short period of time. And those eating those foods, while they may provide you with your macronutrients, that are important overall. I mean, they. I'm not saying they're not essential, but what they are depleted in is in those micronutrients that I'm saying are are those. They're they're really that's that fuel that is required in order for your brain to function. So if you're that's not there, then you can see why it would have um, a whole host of different effects. Right. So we've got that happening. But then on top of that, you're also asking me about well, what else is going on? I think that's what you were also yes. getting at. Is that so we know that's happening, but even if you're eating a, what you think is a, we might consider a reasonable, healthy diet, there's been other things that have also changed really quite rapidly. And, and part of that is just our farming practices. And so one thing that we really go into in the book is to talk about how that's really changed and the impact that that can have on the nutrient density of our foods. So for example, we now uh, really select crops that grow really quickly. And that makes sense because we have to feed a lot of people. We've got, there are billions of us on the planet. So you want crops that are going to grow quickly. And there's a lot of things that we can now do in order to accelerate the growth of crops. And so one thing that we might use are things like glyphosate or Roundup. So things that are put on our crops in order to help them grow more quickly by killing off the weeds that are, are like the competition. So that is, that's a good thing in terms of providing food or calories. But the impact that has is that the plant has less time to take up the minerals that are in the soil. And so it's really important that we get the minerals into the plants because then the plant uses those minerals in order to make vitamins. So if we don't have an adequate supply of minerals, then you can see that the amount of vitamins in your plant is also going to be compromised. So we've got these things that are going on that are are going to um, also play a role in the amount of vitamins and minerals that we're going to be consuming. Okay. Um, so as far as nutrition, how does that play out with, a, to, to turn the discussion back to um, parenting and, and children, um, how does that play out developmentally with a growing child and later in adolescence? Do kids have special nutritional needs, especially sure. if they're, they're under stress? So we would start then with pregnancy and in and during pregnancy, it's so important that 
the mother is eating these these nutrient-dense foods, real foods, not ultra-processed foods. And I say that with confidence because there's research that shows that the more that she consumes a diet that's high in ultra-processed food, the more likely that increases the risk that her child is going to have uh, internalizing, what we call internalizing and externalizing challenges. So that would be things like having um, maybe more, they're more prone to anxiety or they're more prone to behavioral problems. Um, like being oppositional or de de defiant or struggling with concentration. Mm -hmm. So we know that. And we also know that the more she consumes uh, you know, fruits and vegetables in her diet, then the lower the risk for those behavioral outcomes. So we know that already. And we also know that the more she also consumes uh, essential fatty acids, then that also has plays an important role in overall development. So we really want to make sure that the mother during pregnancy really sets up everything as best as she can during pregnancy in order to increase the outcome, the good outcomes for her child. It's not to say that if she eats poorly, that her child will definitely have problems. It just mm -hmm. increases the, the risk. So we're always trying to reduce those risks. And so it's only, it, it's only one piece of the whole, of the whole big picture of the mm -hmm. puzzle I mean, we know that drinking alcohol during pregnancy is not a good thing or smoking or doing drugs. So there's a whole host of, or being really, really stressed during pregnancy or, um, you know, going through a famine during pregnancy, all of those things can also influence the child's outcome. So it's just, I'm just focusing on, on, on one element. So then we've got the child and we know that the research again shows that um, early in childhood, what the, the child eats has an effect on those behavioral outcomes. But ultimately, the way to think about it, I like to think about the, especially as the child is getting older and going through teenage years, is that it's their brain goes through absolutely massive reconstruction. I think of road <laughs> cones and traffic cones. And, and so in order for the, for the reconstruction to uh, come out with the best outcome is that you need those vitamins and minerals and you need omega-3 fatty acids. And so you need a really a, a rich a replenishment of these nutrients during a time of greater developmental need. So that's when I think about how important it is that we nourish our children and make sure that they're eating these foods that are going to be rich in nutrients as opposed to the ultra-processed stuff that is so prevalent in our supermarkets and right. unfortunately in school lunches and in canteens and, and all of the rest. It reminds me how kids always want to eat candy and we always tell them, eat your vegetables. And so that's a, a very true truism. Uh, yes, absolutely. Yeah. I hate the fact that we use uh, candy as a reward mm -hmm. for good behavior. It's kind of doesn't make sense. It's like, well, hold on, that candy we know contributes to bad behavior in the big picture mm. if that's all you're eating. So why we use it as a as that kind of a privilege, is it doesn't it doesn't completely sit well with me. What are some of the general do's and don'ts to support um, children's mental health through nutrition? Like, What do we feed our families? So I don't think it's any different from what would be general advice for anyone is that you want to make sure that your, your half your plate is your 
is is fruit and vegetables, and particularly vegetables, because the f- fruit um, tends to be sweeter, and you end up with more consumption of a lo- of more sugar that way. So, if we can really emphasize the vegetables and very colorful vegetables, so full array of the different colors, and the reason for focusing on different colors is that that's what the colors are influenced by the phytonutrient content of your food, and so we want to make sure that you're getting a good variety of phytonutrients that we also know are really important for your brain. So that's a sort of a first step is that really focusing on ensuring that you're getting your minimum servings and minimum serves are, they vary from country to country, but the numbers I see are from five to nine. So that's a really good goal. Not even 20% of the population is hitting five a day. So that we could all work hard on increasing that consumption of the fruit and vegetables. And in terms of like the advice of, well, what fruit and vegetables? I wouldn't say there's any superfood out there, but there's a lot of uh, vegetables that can be, it depends on the season, are going to be cheaper. So eat in season. And so that would be, you know, like eating your kale in your winter time, or I mean, avocados seem to be available at the moment in New Zealand all the time. And they're super cheap all the time, which is remarkable because they're such a, an amazing powerhouse of nutrients and good fats. Um, but you're wanting to focus in on that eating in season. And then your protein source could be, you know, if, if you're a meat eater would be the fish and the, you know, the other grass fed meat would be my preference. And I know that's harder to find in the United States than it is in New Zealand, but also other amazing protein sources are things like your legumes, your, your um, uh, beans, your black beans or your lentils, super, super cheap. And I know you're, you're going to ask me about that, but those are really good sources of nutrients that if you start to learn how to cook them, learn lentils cook really fast. And they, if you, you know, add, you mix them up with some, you know, stick a cinnamon stick in in, when you're boiling up your, your, when you're cooking your lentils or add a little bit of ginger to it will give a bit more flavor and then mix it with some onions and you know, some garlic and you've got a really tasty dish there of your Mm -hmm. lentils mixed in with, and, and something that even my kids have, have enjoyed. So must've, must've been good. So that's, that's where you're, you're looking. And then your carbs would be another quarter of your plate. And that would be, you'd be looking for your more complex carbs, not your simple carbs, like your white bread. So that's sort of an, hopefully a few tips of what we're, we're aiming for. And so we're trying to reduce the amount of, there's no, there's no, I don't see where sugary drinks has to fit into your diet. I, I would say reducing your sugary drink intake is going to be really, really important. Mm-hmm. It may take some time because of you, you end up getting addicted to those types of, of foods. So it would be a slow changeover, maybe using carbonated water or more like flavoring your water with lemon or something, if, but really reducing that intake of that extra sugar that you just don't, you don't right. need. It doesn't provide any nutritional value mm-hmm. whatsoever to your diet. So think about it. I always like to call Coke Zero. The reason why Coke Zero is Coke Zero is because it's got no nutrients. So <laughs> we can think about it that way. Then we can go, oh, right. Well, then clearly uh, there's no, it's, it, places, it plays no role in good brain health. I know you recommend what's called the Mediterranean diet, which has mm. all those types of foods that you, um, mm-hmm. a lot of produce, <laughs> That's right. I, I forgot to mention the nuts and the seeds as well that are contained within the, the Mediterranean diet that are a really rich source of nutrients. 
Uh, you talk a lot in your work about the importance of supplements, um, mm. such as, but that you speak of a that you for mental health issues that you need them at higher levels than the minimum mm. that you would um, be recommended or that you would find in gummy bears, <laughs> vitamins, yes. and yeah. that you should not take single micronutrients because it just doesn't really work. So can you talk a little about the role of supplements? Because I know they're getting a bad name these days. They sure are. Yes. And it's it. so the, the focus of the book is on food first and really explaining what I've been describing about why you really want to be eating more nutrient-dense food and why you need to do it for your brain. But then what we know is that even, and based on it might be because of those agricultural practices and the change in our density of our nutrient of our food, it could be that we don't remineralize the soil adequately. So there's a whole host of other reasons why the food isn't as nourishing. But the data, the research that's been done on single nutrients, so that's just giving zinc or just giving vitamin D or just giving magnesium. When that research was reviewed by Bonnie Kaplan, where she looked at a whole hundred years of single nutrient research, overall, it was remarkably disappointing. There wasn't, you know, there's a few new single nutrients that might be, um, might shoot, prove to be really beneficial. But overall, when you're treating a complex uh, a problem like mental health challenges, then a single nutrient is simply not going to adequately provide the brain with that fuel that I was describing because mm -hmm. making those the chemicals that your brain needs to operate requires the whole array of nutrients. There is no single magic nutrient. Mm -hmm. So when you start to think about it that way, you go, well, why would you ever supplement with one single nutrient? Because it doesn't make sense. It just doesn't make biological sense to just give one nutrient. We have evolved to need to eat a, a full array of different types of foods for the reason that different foods offer us different combinations of nutrients. Mm -hmm. So we, you know, when we've seen diets uh, where people only eat one food, we know that disease occurs. And so an a good example in the psychological psychiatry field would be uh, pellagra was a disease in the 1920s that was caused by uh, people eating corn-based diets. Hmm. And what they realized was it was because they were, they were becoming really deficient in niacin which is vitamin B3. And that led to fortification with B3 when they discovered what the problem was. So that's one example of a special, you know, where a single nutrient played a very important role in eradicating a disease, but we haven't continued to find those special nutrients very often. But that's an example of where just eating a very uh, confined type of diet can influence your health. So the first thing is then is that I'm not, we're not a big fan of single nutrient treatments and for the reason I've just described. So we want to give the full array of nutrients and that's about 15, 15 minerals and 15 vitamins. And so no magic, the full array. But when it comes to dose, research has shown that hitting below the RDA is simply not what your brain needs. So um, the RDAs, which is the recommended dietary allowance, which is on, you'll see it on all your food packages, and that there's this belief that you just need to hit 100%. What your listeners need to understand is that those RDAs were developed in the 1940s in order to ensure that the men who were going to war were physically healthy and we're getting their, their adequate amount of nutrients in order for their muscles to operate and their bones and their heart 
not their brain. Mm-hmm. And so RDAs haven't really evolved, haven't changed much since the 1940s, despite the fact that the science has really moved on and recognizes that the brain needs nutrients at a much higher level. So taking a one a day gummy bear might help you, you know, might, might prevent you from getting scurvy, but it's hmm. not meeting the optimal amount that your brain needs. So we really need to move away from this RDA concept because it's really harming us. It's harming us in terms of not ensuring that we take those nutrients in an adequate level. You would go above 100% RDA very easily if you were eating you know, a, a, that amount of fruit and vegetables that I was describing to you earlier. Uh, you know, if you, Just eating five Brazil nuts would probably go over the 100% for selenium. doesn't mean it's going to kill you, but I'm just giving you an example that you can, you know, you can do it with diet alone. So I'm not, I, I'm not saying something that's contrary to what could be achieved with diet. You might just need to eat a lot more. So then that, that's where, but then it's, the foods might be depleted. You might be genetically needing more nutrients. And we have some clues to that. Is that some people may be more vulnerable to depletions in the nutrients in their food and so may need more than what they can get adequately or easily from, a di- from diet alone. So that's where supplements come in. And that's where our, my research for the last 10 years plays a really important role in saying, you know what, when we give supplements at these higher than RDA doses, typically with the full breadth of those nutrients, we seem to be having a really positive effect on many, not all, but many people. So it, it then though, just reaffirms what I was saying before, which is that these studies are confirming that whatever, for whatever reason, we're not getting an adequate amount of minerals and vitamins from our food. Okay, yeah, let's talk about um, some of the scientific research that's backing up the nutritional approach that you advocate uh, sure. on improving mental health, especially with kids. Uh, what yes. are some of the major studies that you yeah. can cite either by that you have done or sure. that are well known globally um, to address issues in kids such as ADHD, depression, um, anxiety, trauma, and so forth? Sure. Examples. Absolutely. So, I don't know if you know your listeners are familiar with the different types of designs of studies, but the the emphasis is often on randomized controlled trials because they are controlling. They're attempting to control for everything else that explains why people get better in a scientific experiment, but um, that because you have a, a what we call a placebo, it means that you can really confidently say. That if the those who took the active nutrients, they outperform those who are taking the placebo, you can confidently say it's the act. The reason why they outperformed was likely to do with the fact that they were taking these extra minerals and vitamins. So I'm going to focus on the randomized control trials, and I do that because a lot of people don't realize that we've got a lot of those out there. So when I counted it, we had um, you know something. I'm trying to think how many over 50 randomized control trials across you know aggression, anxiety, stress, mood across all ages, and about 80% of those randomized control trials are positive. So that means that the nutrients outperformed the placebo. 
So we can pretty confidently say that there's something going on. So when it comes to kids, the studies that have been done from my lab looked at ADHD. And so kids who were struggling with attention concentration problems, being impulsive and hyperactive, when they were given the nutrients, then we they they um, overall were looking were more globally looking better. That is, they were calmer, their attention improved, they um, were less aggressive, they were less emotionally dysregulated relative to the placebo group. And it's important, Miranda, that I've pointed out that it's not just about ADHD, that in fact, a lot of those symptoms aren't part of that ADHD diagnosis, but they're still really impairing for those kids. And they tend to be more dysregulated and more aggressive than kids who don't have ADHD. So to see benefit in those areas is a really a big plus, a real big bonus. Um, so we've, we've, um, We've seen that in adults as well in our RCT. This is now getting replicated in the states. So there's a study that's very close to being published uh, in the in the states where we'll know those results hopefully in the next few months. So uh, when it comes to aggression in children, there's a lot of studies that have looked at aggression in kids who are sort of the juvenile delinquents. I think it's the term the term that was used in the study. It's not the you know perhaps not the best term to be used used at the moment, but kids who are super aggressive more than their their peers and tend to get themselves into trouble or trouble with the law. Again, giving the vitamins and minerals that broad array of nutrients seem to have a positive effect on in decreasing their aggression. So that's really a great outcome. We've seen, uh, there's been studies done in the States uh, led by Jim Adams, who's done our, these randomized control trials for kids with autism and kids and adults with autism. And again, there's some, the, the trials are showing that those who are given the minerals and vitamins are doing a lot better than those kids who were given the placebo. So those are just a few examples of, of uh, areas that we have concern that parents have concerns about their children, where we've seen benefit of just the additional vitamins and minerals, usually above RDA, but not in a level that's going to be toxic. And we've collected a lot of safety data to look at that and be able to answer that question. We can, mm-hmm. you know, confidently say in the short term, and also it looks like in the long term. This is not there. We are not observing adverse effects. It's not that I can't guarantee. I can't guarantee something bad won't happen, but I can say based on the data, feel pretty confident that if there is an adverse effect, the risk is really low. When you say being given new high doses of broad spectrum nutrients versus placebo, was the placebo no treatment whatsoever, or treatment as usual, or it depended on the study? Oh no! In all of those cases, it's a it's a it, it's going to be a pill that just simply doesn't have the active ingredients in it. It's going to have other types of fillers in there, but we don't think it's going to have an active effect. Other than our placebo that we use in our trials has a little bit of riboflavin in there, which is B2. And the reason for giving that is that it has that's the that's the B vitamin that can change your urine color. So we're trying to make sure that that we don't give away what they're taking when they uh, consume the placebo. So they still have the change potential change in the urine color. So, so all of those trials that I've just described, they are your as good as a drug trial. So if we 
we we seem to have a lot of confidence uh, sometimes poor, probably poorly placed in drug trials mm-hmm. uh, but we have confidence that when when a antidepressant outweighs the placebo then we say yep that antidepressant is effective well we've done this our trials exactly the same way in that we have everyone's blind to what they're taking no one knows who's been put into which arm the child doesn't know the parent doesn't know we don't know our statistician didn't know when they were analyzing the data mm-hmm. so that is your the best type of robust methodology that you can get uh, to establish whether or not the nutrients are superior to placebo treatment as usual is not as strong a a, a, um, a design because everybody knows what they're getting and mm-hmm. so that influences their ratings of you know whether or not they thought they were getting better based on what are what they received so the placebo control is really viewed as that that um the top standard but as we also talk about in the in the book is that we can't rely just on those types of trials we also need to be looking at other types of experimental designs and that the whole it's the it's the sum of the everything together that really gives us that confidence Mm -hmm. that this is clearly having a, a positive effect on on people's mood or anxiety or stress or whatever it is that we're targeting. So let's um, segue into the book proper. You have a new book, The Better Brain, Overcoming Anxiety, Combat Depression, and Reduce ADHD and Stress with Nutrition. Yes. Why did you write it? Um, It's more for the layperson. And what type of information will readers find in there? Sure. Well, I have to give full credit to Bonnie Kaplan, my co-author, on why did we write it. Uh, she wanted she she she's also been involved in this work for longer than I've been involved in, certain probably more like twenty five years, whereas I've only been doing this for about fifteen years. So she's the one who got me into this re- this area of research, and it was just recognizing that there was no go to place that really explained what I've been describing in this interview, which is why we need to care about the nutrient density of the foods that we eat. And that is, again, that mineral and vitamin content. So we wanted to be able to really explain that. And it's never re- it's amazing that that's never been uh, focused on before in a book, is explaining why you should care, why you should care about not drinking Coke, because it gives you your brain nothing. It's giving it nothing at all for what it needs to function at its best in that lo- in a long-term vision. So that's what we thought really needed to be uh, addressed. And then we wanted to uh, also be able to provide uh, an opportunity to explain the studies that I've just described quite quite in a, you know, quite con- in a condensed way. In the book, we go into a lot more detail about the studies. And we also give stories. We give a lot of anecdotal stories of people whose lives have turned around. And so that's, again, something that really provides some richness to, this, to the book that you don't get out of an academic journal article. So mm-hmm. we wanted to bring it alive. And then we wanted to be able to provide recipes that aligned fully with the message that we were saying. So we've got recipes in there that that align with the Mediterranean um, style diet. And we also wanted to talk about all of the amazing studies that have been done on diet and mental health, which is really only in the last 10 years. So it was to bring it all together to make the message really clear. Yeah. Um, There are a number of case studies that you mentioned of real life uh, young people that you've treated, including children. Um, yes. And I'm thinking particularly of the story of 
Isaiah. So can you um, give short takes on what those anecdotes are and how sure. it worked out for them with their what their yeah. issues were and how nutrition helped them? Sure. So I'll talk about Isaiah because I know him personally. And he, he participated in one of our clinical trials, the one on ADHD, over eight years ago. So we've monitored. I, I, I saw them, as you, you mentioned, he's in one of the videos for the online course. And so he's now 17, but he, he, I think he started when he was nine. So I can really confidently say these nutrients have had a pretty positive effect on his life. So when he came to us, he'd been diagnosed with ADHD. He also was oppositional. He had a lot of learning difficulties. He was, he's just had, a, this kid has had a lot of challenges from birth and he'd been tried on a whole bunch of different medications typically used for ADHD. And not only did they make him worse, they made him more irritable, they made him more moody. So here's a kid who's who is being stood down and kicked out and expelled from preschools and schools. I think there was, I can't remember the number, something like five different preschools. His parents don't know how to manage his behavior. Nothing is working. So they hear about this clinical trial and they decide, what do we have to lose? Let's give this a go. And so uh, we now know that Isaiah had been randomized to the, the, the active ingredients. And even within the first couple of weeks, uh, he was, we saw, uh, you know, just these changes and that often the changes are quite subtle in that it's things like, well, he, you know, he, normally he would get really angry about being told to put on his shoes, but he just did it. And so these things that can really cause a huge frustration of just your day-to-day -day functioning as a parent, they just disappeared. And so it was it wasn't necessarily that we he was they were they were seeing the, the effects on concentration. It was more these things of he was no longer explosive and he was managing difficulties a lot better. So if things went wrong, he didn't get angry and have an outburst and hit, kill, and hit somebody. He would he would just kind of it would it roll over him and this is something that we see all the time in our studies that we've done on stress as well where it's just they say people seem to be able to just manage the difficulties that are coming their way um, with uh, greater reserve and resilience so within a few weeks we were seeing the benefits and those benefits just continued to get better and better over time after eight weeks, you'd think, wow, this kid is so much better. But after six months and then a year, you just continue to see the benefits. And so not only did he, he caught up on, on several years of schooling over the time that he was on the nutrients, and he's now right where he should be in terms of his schooling, which is a remarkable achievement. This kind of kid is the kind of kid who you'd expect if he got stayed on that trajectory, he would have been the kind of kid who'd ended up being offending and become a young offender. Mm -hmm. And he had that's not what's happened. He's embraced school. His mom talks about how he's into psychology and philosophy, and he's just a really neat kid. And he's gotten into skateboarding that would have been really difficult for him to do uh, when he was, because of all the, the motor challenges that he's had, but he had the perseverance and uh, to keep going. And he's just a fantastic skateboarder. And that's something that you see in his video, in the video is just mm -hmm. his absolute love and passion for skateboarding. So really great story and great outcome. And he continues to take the nutrients. And every time he stops, they see the behaviors come back. Wow. So for whatever reason, this kid needs those nutrients in order to function normally. So which nutrients are these? Is it a full spectrum of 15 um, vitamins and, and 15 yep. minerals that you mentioned? 
we give all of the details in the book about all the different supplements because at the end of the day, I'm a psychologist, not a manufacturer of nutrients. I'm not mm -hmm. a pharmacist. So we've been using products that are out there that have been developed for this purpose and we've studied them. So we're, and we always say that they're, they're, there's no magic supplement out there that they are serve, they're helping us answer a question about whether or not giving a broad array of nutrients can be helpful. So in the book, we have a whole chapter devoted to talking about supplements and which supplement products have actually been studied for the treatment of mental mm. health issues. Mm -hmm. And so the, the ones that we've used, uh, you know, uh, there's daily essential nutrients, there's uh, Empower Plus, we've, I've studied Baraka, so a number of different uh, formulas and in the book, we talk about the evidence behind those. And so I'm, I hate to be here, you know, try, I'm certainly not here to sell a product and I don't make any money. And that's really, really important that your listeners know that I am not uh, making money out of the sale of any supplement product. Mm -hmm. We've never received any funding for any of our research from the manufacturers of the products that we've studied. So we're very much at arm's length, which is quite mm -hmm. different from how studies are done in the pharmaceutical area. Mm -hmm. They often they often fund the studies that are done. Yes. So I just want to say that outward because I don't want to make it. You've asked me for the names, so I've given them to you. But really encourage people to get hold of the book because we go into great detail about the evidence for different supplements and some of the pros and cons. So uh, let's do another. Um, case study, Andrew, who had symptoms that are called OCD. So Andrew was treated um, in Alberta, in Calgary, at the Alberta Children's Hospital. And so uh, he his case has been uh, published. And mm. he was um, not somebody that I treated. This was somebody who Bonnie knows. Mm -hmm. And my understanding is that he was uh, admitted to the Alberta Children's Hospital. Not only did he have OCD, he also had psychosis. So where he had hallucinations and delusions. So he had obsessions, he had compulsions, he had, um, he was, he was thinking that the, the, the food was poisoned. So he had a lot of um, delusions about what was going on in his environment. And he was uh, treated in the, uh, he was an in, uh, inpatient for six months, uh, receiving the best care that Alberta could provide to him. And every task was done to try to figure out why he was presenting this way at such an early age. And he was eventually um, uh, released back home and, and his mother you know, there was told that she needed to quit her job in order to look after Andrew full time. They had no solutions for him. So the family heard about the nutrients, the micronutrients that we've been studying and asked the psychiatrist, uh, Megan Rodway, who is taught, we also, she talk, tells a little bit of her story in the book. And uh, said, well, you know, you know, the, I don't, you know, there's no evidence for this, but I, you know, certainly I'm happy to support um, observing how it goes with the micronutrients. And so um, Andrew started taking the micronutrients, and he tracked his own hallucinations and delusions. Huh. And over that same sort of time frame of six months, his hallucinations and delusions were completely under control with the micronutrients, whereas they weren't. There was no control 
whatsoever with any of the conventional treatments that he'd been offered. And he continues to do well if he takes his nutrients. And I think he must be in his early 20s by now. And he finished high school and he has a job and he has friends. He still has, he still struggles in some areas. So it's not like I, want, I don't want to make it sound like it's always a full cure mm-hmm. that people continue to struggle. But I also want to say that life is a struggle. And each one of us, if we're, we're faced with certain things, events and bad things happen to us, we still feel sadness and we still will feel anxiety if we're in an earthquake, for example. These things will happen. So I don't think that the full elimination of some of these emotions is necessarily a good thing. So I just want to make sure that's understood that we don't eliminate emotions. They're still there and they still serve the very important purpose um, in helping us navigate through life. But the one really important part of that case in particular was the cost. And the cost of the nutrients was less than 2% of the cost of the inpatient stay. And so that alone should be a really powerful message that while it's not, as I've said already, is that not everyone is changed dramatically by nutrients. Uh, When it happens, it can be not only life-saving for that individual, but incredibly cost-effective. And yet another reason why we're so keen to get the message out there is that we think that nutrients is going to save uh, public healthcare systems or insurance companies a lot of money uh, because we can reduce that cycling in and out of inpatient care that you see often see when people are on psychiatric medications. We don't see that with nutrients. When people get well, they stay well on nutrients. We just don't see that reemergence of symptoms. If we do see it, it can be because there's a really good explanation for it. Like, for example, I might hear from, from parents and say, you know, my child was doing really well. And then I've just noticed over the last couple of weeks there, you know, it seems like they're slipping back to some of those old behaviors. And I say something like, well, have they been sick? Well, that might be an example. Like, or have they gone in for a dental procedure? That's an interesting one that can influence that just having that anesthetic can influence um, the new, the how well the nutrients are working. Uh, if you have, you know, a yeast infection or you're going through puberty, a growth spurt. I always think of the growth spurt as taking dominating in the intake of, of the, the nutrient needs. It's very hungry for nutrients when you're when a child is going through a growth spurt. So there's less available for other functions. So if you start to think about nutrients in that way, that there's a limited amount, if there's only a limited amount, it's going to get diverted to the most important thing that's going on in your body. Mm-hmm. Then you realize that sometimes you may need to top up with, a, with, with more during that acute period of, of, you know, where something else is happening in your life. Yeah. I think it's an important message that when we are going through stress or trauma, that we do have higher nutritional needs, which if I had known exactly. that years ago, I would have made some adjustments. You also did some research about uh, earthquakes in New Zealand, exactly. how people were traumatized by that, and that people who were given broad spectrum nutrients were able to kind of maintain their equilibrium and be less traumatized. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. Well, we wonder again, whether or not what's happening there is improved resilience, that you're, you're ensuring the tank is full before you go into an earthquake would be my, what I, my recommendation. Don't mm-hmm. go into an earthquake with an empty tank because everything will get diverted to the 
this the fight flight response and there's then fewer availability of nutrients for everything else and so always make sure that your fuel tank is full and the right. way to do that is to always make sure that you're in your you've got an adequate intake of nutrients so yeah this the stress that our studies on stress have been really revealing around the need to to to, to keep that that fuel tank full i know the book gives parents and anyone who reads it good advice on how to um, have a healthy diet and and um, what type of supplements that you might want to try. But if you have a child that has, you know, what seems a pretty serious mental health issue and you're doing everything in the book, um, but you're not sure if it's really helping or, or you just want more help, where can people find uh, practitioners like yourself oh, okay. who focus on this, especially if they're not in New Zealand? Yeah, good question. I don't know if I have an adequate answer for that. There's a lot more integrative physicians out there, and the companies that sell the products often know how to direct you, d- direct people to those uh, resources that are in the community and finding them. So that's where my, where I would say go to first would be to get the companies to help you with that because they've now started to develop directories of people who are familiar with using the supplements and all importantly using the supplements alongside medications because there are important interactions that happen when you take the nutrients alongside medications that need to be properly uh, addressed and uh, you and cross titration needs to occur and and if you don't do that properly, then probably your experimenting with with nutrients is going to be a, potentially a failure. So you need to have somebody who's completely on board and understands those drug-nutrient interactions. And that's something, again, we talk about in the book in quite a bit of detail so mm-hmm. that he, people are fully aware of that what that potential challenge. It can be done, can be navigated, uh, but as, you, as probably listeners of Mad in America know, withdrawal is a huge problem. And so it's about how do you withdraw off of a medication safely so that it's as comfortable for the individual as possible. And nutrients can help that. We don't have as much research on that as I'd like to. And that's because it's just really hard research to do uh, adequately. Mm. But what we have observed is that people can come off of their medications with nutrients when before they were unable to do so. So clearly it's giving some benefit to uh, helping with those withdrawal symptoms. That's welcome information because I know a lot of people have a really hard struggle coming off of of psychiatric drugs. And I gather that um, psychiatric drugs can sometimes deplete nutrition. It just depends on the drug. Like any drug can deplete nutrition. Is that right? Exactly. Yes. And that's something that I think a lot of people aren't aware of, that that can be one of the effects. And so that's, again, a good reason to make sure that you're eating well when you're taking medication. You alluded to this a little uh, about the cost of eating well, but mm. you know, not, not everyone has money for the best produce and and or necessarily access to the real whole foods and supplements, which usually are not covered by insurance. So, any thoughts on being able to kind of financially afford? I know. You know. Yes, that's right. Eating your brain. <laughs> Yes, that's right. I think one of the worries I have when there's this pushback that, well, well, the, where there's these comments that say, oh, you can't possibly eat healthy, is that you end up with this learned helplessness, which is, 
I'm just not going to bother at all. Mm. And I think that any steps in the right direction are going to be beneficial. So while you might not be eating lobster and steak every day, I don't even recommend that you do that. (laughs) And that's going to be far more expensive. That there are ways to start shifting away from the ultra-processed foods that can be can be cheap. And I described some of those. If you're using, say, those the beans and the lentils and other protein sources rather than really expensive meats, then that's going to be one way you can do it, eating your fruits and vegetables in season, getting involved in the community markets and community gardens where you can participate in the growing of food and then get your probably your produce for free in some instances. Explore those in your local community. Going organic can be beneficial, but there's also there's there's the the dirty dozen and clean fifteen, which which helps you know well if I don't have a lot of money, which produce should I buy organic, and which ones can I get away with uh, buying them in uh, not organic. Mm-hmm. Uh, because we know that when they're organic, they tend to be more expensive. Mm-hmm. But we also know that people who grow organic tend to be better stewards of the soil. And so we hope that they overall, the growing uh, process is going, to be, uh, is going to be better when you go organic, but not necessarily. So there's, there's just thinking about it that way uh, in terms of which, where to focus your, your dollars when you are going organic. Um, but I, again, it's not, it's, it's that, we think about uh, a processed, ultra processed food as being cheap, but I would say that you know being cheap, that cheap is an illusion there because it might be cheap at the cash register, but that doesn't mean that it's cheap in the long term for your health. Mm-hmm. And so, thinking about it from the context of, well, how many days off sick do you have as a consequence of your diet? Because that diet is influencing whether or not you might have a- other uh, medical conditions. That that's going to influence whether or not you have diabetes or obesity which are going to be health issues that can influence your ability to work. So to think about that bigger context, not the immediate one of how much something is going to cost, but to think about it in the bigger context. I mean, you could eat, yeah, I, 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 I didn't get make it into the, the book, but it's in the online courses where I say that, you know, a cardboard box is low in calories and low in sodium and low in fat and, <laughs> and, and low in sugar, but that doesn't mean you should be eating it. And so I would say the same thing about ultra processed food. Yes, it may be cheap, but it's certainly not providing providing your body with what it needs to function. Mm -hmm. Even increasing our intake of one vegetable based on a Canadian study would have dramatic um, changes in terms of the cost saving for the public purse. So if we could think of, you know, if governments got on board with this, idea that of really pushing improving the quality of the foods that that people are eating their citizens are eating then that would have a huge impact on the health care cost saving so when parents uh this you know they they read the book or they listen to this podcast and they decide yes i really want to see if nutrition can help my child that that has mental health or behavioral issues and in general but they're going to probably need buy-in from their pediatrician so how are you know doctors and child psychiatrists and such um responding to your message are you getting good feedback is there resistance or what 
I think like definitely when I first started this work, there was only resistance and Mm -hmm. that was resistance from uh, psychiatrists in the community who wouldn't refer patients to our trials or resistance in terms of not being able to get ethical approval or to get the work published. So there's been a lot of resistance over the years and it's been really quite difficult. But, you know, I'm heartened by the fact that on my online course, for example, I see that there are psychiatrists and pediatricians and physicians who are taking the course. So they are upskilling. And so hopefully those people are going to tell, because that the course is entirely, and the book is entirely based in science. You can't challenge us that the science doesn't exist. And it's just, I'd like to just be compassionate towards those people who get, who resist this idea is partly because it just, it challenges their worldview and it ends up making people feel really uncomfortable when you're suggesting something that completely is at all with what they've been taught in medical school. So they're not taught about nutrition. And so to be told that nutrition is so valuable in good health is contrary to what they've been told over and over and over again, that the only way to achieve good brain health is by taking a drug. So if you've been told that over and over and over again, and you're aligned with the idea that these it's just all about chemical imbalances and that you can the only way to treat that is with a drug and then someone comes along and says that you know we what we really need to be focused on is those the nutrient inadequate nutrient intake it just doesn't fit and so we tend to reject those ideas but if we can get the more we can get people engaging the science and now you know 10, 15, 20 years on, we have so much science now. It's so compelling. It's so robust that if anyone engaged with it, they would go, of course, we need to be paying attention. And I've seen some of those comments on the on the online discussion board, which is that exactly that. I didn't realize there was so much evidence out there. Hmm. Or uh, now that you've explained it to me, I get why it makes no sense whatsoever to do those single nutrient studies. So I would I, I I I can only be hopeful that the more people who engage with the science and recognize the the real value of focusing on the micronutrient intake of of all of our citizens and everybody around the world, then the better everybody's brain health is going to be. Our guest has been psychologist Julia Rucklidge of the University of Canterbury's Mental Health and Nutrition Research Group. Her new book with Dr. Bonnie Kaplan is The Better Brain, which you can find out more about at www.thebetterbrainbook.com. I'm Miranda Spencer, and this has been Mad in the Family. Thank you for listening to the Mad in America podcast. Visit madinamerica.com for more news, views, and updates.